All right, let's pause and pray. Father God, we thank you for being gracious and kind, patient, um, ever seeking our good, withholding no good thing from us, conforming us into the image of your Son, Lord, doing things that are far beyond our realm of comprehension when we think about how good you've been to us. Pray now, Lord, that you would set us up here to uh, be ready to receive good things from your word, that you would present us with a trajectory in Matthew that will cause us to be conformed into that image of your son, which we see here. Lord, we thank you for preserving this account. We thank you for giving us the means to read it and to make sense of it. We thank you, Lord, for your spirit who surely applies the truths of this book to the hearts of your people. So, Lord, we hope now that that we will have a foundation that allows us uh, to build upon. So always let that be Christ. Be, Lord, with me now as strength in the midst of my weakness. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, Matthew. Matthew is where we will be for the foreseeable future. The gospel according to Matthew. We know that there are four gospels, right? I'll have you know, by the way, that when I first was converted and then shortly after called to the ministry and showed up at seminary, I didn't have any clue what the four Gospels were. That might have been even a a question on a quiz that I had, and I didn't know what to say. But I will bring you comfort that I do now know what they are. And I do find and have found that I've spent most of my time with Matthew as far as the Gospels go. And I love Matthew in a different way than the rest of the Gospels. Not that they don't all give us vantage points and viewpoints of Jesus' life and teaching and example, but Matthew does some amazing things that I love. Matthew connects all of Scripture, Old and New Testament, in a way that no other Gospel writer does. And that probably stems from the fact that Matthew is a Jew, even though he was a Jew who was outcast. He wasn't allowed to worship in the synagogue because of what his role was in society. We'll get into that in a little bit. But each gospel writer does have that vantage point. Each gospel writer does have that in which they are trying to proclaim to their readers. They have an audience. They have a background. They have an experience with the risen Lord and his apostles, or they may even be apostles themselves. And they have, by the Holy Spirit, been tasked with recording the good news according to them. Now, that doesn't mean that this is only according to them, or this is how the only way that they saw it, or this is 
truth as far as they know. No, this is, this is just them giving us the gospel, the truth from their specific personality and existence. And for some reason, I find that, that Matthew is my most beloved gospel. One of the reasons that I really love Matthew is because of Matthew. Matthew is presented as such a humble figure in uh, the life of Christ. Even in his own gospel, we don't hear about him except for in chapter 9 and the listing of the 12. He, he doesn't go out of his way to really detail even his own call. It's very simple. It's very short. It's very matter-of-fact. This is and that's kind of rare for Matthew. He explains things. He goes into detail on some stuff. And yet when it comes to him being presented in this gospel, it's, it's very short. And I like that. I like that because this is about the good news of Jesus Christ and it's not about Matthew. He gets it, Right? And I would argue that we wouldn't have this gospel if he didn't get it, obviously. But he gets it. Another reason that I like Matthew so much is because of who he was, you know, he understands how much he was forgiven. He understands that technically he's not supposed to be on the inside of things. He's not supposed to be allowed into the worship of our Lord. And so, kind of, he who is forgiven much loves much. I I think that's Matthew. I think he loves the Lord in such an amazing, humble, quiet, unique way. So, first of all, let's talk about who Matthew is, right? We know he's a Jew. The other gospel writers list him as Levi, right? That's his Jewish name. Uh, But we see in this gospel that he's Matthew, okay? So being a Jew and being what Matthew was, a tax collector, is a really difficult space to exist in because Rome occupies all of Palestine at this point in time. And by their occupation, they pay for their occupation through collecting taxes from the citizens of those areas that they occupy. And one way they do this, or the the main way they do this, is they set up tax collection booths that are um, bought and inhabited uh, by citizens of the area. And so as, as the Jewish people see Israel as their land, right? They're a nation. It's theirs. They're not supposed to have any other occupying nation over them. They are Israel. Certainly as Rome has come in and conquered and occupied them, they don't want anything to do with paying for that occupation, And in fact, you see throughout the Gospels that most of what they're looking for is freedom from Roman rule and not freedom from the sin that rules over them. So if you have a a brother Jew 
who is working for that oppressive force, do you think he's well-liked by all Jews? No. In all the Gospels and in throughout the New Testament, we see that these guys are listed with prostitutes and all manner of sinners. They are the lowest of the low. They're wealthy, which is part of the reason that people hate them. Because they have become wealthy off collecting more tax than they need to from their fellow Jews. Rome gives them a a quota to hit, a certain amount of tax that they need to send to the Roman government, and anything they collect over that is theirs. And they have uh, the Roman military behind them to be able to kind of be the muscle in collecting those taxes. Now, there's two forms of tax collectors. They're called little mokes and big mokes. Zacchaeus was a big moke. Imagine like a, uh, a fast food franchise, right? Like a bunch of uh, Chick-fil-A's. Well, Zacchaeus owned like a bunch of Chick-fil-A's, and Matthew would be the one who like runs a Chick-fil-A. Okay? So, uh, Matthew, but he's still wealthy. He's still getting... Um, more than he needs to collect from his one booth. And he would have somebody over him that oversaw a bunch of different booths like Zacchaeus. So this is Levi. This is what he's doing. So not only is he doing that, but because he's doing that, his fellow Jews would not allow him to enter the synagogue. So he's a Jew. He's outcast. He's kind of selling himself out for the Roman government, right? And he's not allowed to go to synagogue. So who would his friends be? They're not going to be fellow Jews. They're probably not even going to be the Roman centurion and guard. They're going to be other sinners. He's going to associate with uh, the people that we talked about, the, the swindlers, the stealers, the prostitutes, those are going to be the people that Matthew knows. And when you get to chapter 9, you realize that is who Matthew knows. Because when Jesus goes to have a banquet at Matthew's house, who's there? Sinners. So, that tells you a little bit about where Matthew is when Jesus finds him. Now, what it doesn't tell us is how does Matthew, how is Matthew ready to drop everything and follow when Jesus calls? Well, I want to infer, and I don't know if this is fact or not, but it's probably pretty close. You like when a pastor says that, huh? Um, Matthew was obviously some sort of seeker. Matthew had to have known the scriptures at least a little or enough to where he got to the point that he understood a Messiah is coming. And certainly through reading his gospel, you know that he didn't have just a little knowledge of the Old Testament. He had a big knowledge of the Old Testament. And that when Jesus came and when Jesus lived and when Jesus called him and when Jesus left his spirit and gave him a new heart, the dots were connected and Matthew 
sees all of Scripture as pointing to Jesus. And so what Matthew's doing with his gospel, being who Matthew is, is trying to show fellow brothers and sisters, Jewish brothers and sisters, that Jesus is the Messiah. That it's him. The one that we waited for, the one that we read about, it's Jesus from Nazareth. I mean, you even see that that's his intention from the genealogy of Jesus. Because he goes back to David and he goes back to Abraham. And he goes through the legal line of Joseph, whereas Luke goes through the line of Mary. And he's doing that because he wants people to realize that he is that promised one to reign on the eternal throne of David. He's that promised one, that offspring of Abraham. It doesn't get much more Jewish than that. As far as the rest of Matthew's life after um, his conversion, after the writing of his gospel, church history records that he was uh, probably an evangelist to Ethiopia and that there's some uh, monuments and markers uh, there to this day in his honor. Um, he probably died uh, sometime after the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Of course, we can't be sure when. And church history states that he was either burned at the stake, or listen to this, nailed to the ground and beheaded. These guys gave their lives in such horrific ways. They died happily for this gospel that they saw, that they heard, and that they recorded that we may hear the same thing. The early church also unanimously attributes this gospel to Matthew as the one who wrote it. Um, those of his disciples in Ethiopia um, passed it to uh, early church fathers with the unanimous attestation to being Matthew's writing. There is some argument about which gospel was written first, and it comes down to kind of two. Was Matthew written first or was Mark written first? Sometimes it seems like a pointless discussion, but the, the discussion happens because it makes people wonder, did Matthew have Mark's gospel to remind him of certain things and to expand on them, or did it happen the other way around? I argue that Matthew wrote first. Matthew was an apostle. Matthew was an eyewitness of Jesus. Matthew had these things in his mind, in his heart, and Matthew goes to great detail to record some of these things. Matthew 9, 9, this was when we encounter him. Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. That's what we know about how Matthew became an apostle. That's it. And so it leads people to scratch their heads and say, how does that work? How, how does somebody leave a prosperous business literally just in the middle of it happening and follow this guy who proclaims to be the Messiah? 
And Matthew's not even welcome in the synagogue. So what? why does he think he should just get up and leave? He was waiting. Matthew was waiting. And certainly that being an outcast, certainly that kind of being lonely and the only company you have to call friends or not trustworthy people probably makes you long for something more. He's probably, even though he's wealthy, he's probably not tainted by that wealth. He's hoping. And in the effective call of God on his life, when those words are spoken, Matthew understands that his shepherd is calling his sheep. And despite whether he's worthy or not, he's not worthy, none of us are, When Jesus says, follow me, he is Lord, he is Messiah, therefore, whether I'm worthy or not, I'm going. Therefore, whatever it costs me, I'm going. This is what I love about Matthew. He rose and followed him, period. And this is is kind of a springboard for what this gospel is. This, This is a discipleship gospel. The things that Matthew is recording is asking people to to follow Jesus as the promised one who has come. And if he's the promised one, then what he says, we must follow. That's what he's presenting to us in this whole gospel. If, If you make it through all of Matthew without being conformed to the image of Christ, then the Spirit of Christ is not in you. Because that's what he's doing. In the Gospel according to Matthew, he has 99 references to the Old Testament, which is more than Mark, Luke, and John combined. You can look at Matthew 1, Matthew 2, Matthew 4, Matthew 5, Matthew 8, Matthew 12, Matthew... Um, 21 and you'll see this phrase a lot this was to fulfill so that's what I love about Matthew because Jesus will do something or Jesus will teach something or, or something or Jesus will go somewhere and Matthew will stop everybody and say this is why that happened or this is why he said that or this is why he did that because it fulfills the promises of God. And that's who Jesus is according to Matthew. He quotes from every Old Testament section and genre. History, Psalms, wisdom. He quotes it all. He sees Jesus as the fulfillment of all promise. And he takes every opportunity to highlight that Jesus is that promise the anointed one, the Savior. He highlights moments in his life in which unusual people understand that. Matthew 8 and 9 are some of my two favorite chapters, and you need to take those together because in those chapters we're presented with people who shouldn't know who Jesus is, and yet they do. It's awesome. Even when you get to Matthew 15, the Canaanite woman knows who Jesus is. And they, these people, when they, 
when they recognize who Jesus is, they recognize him sometimes as the son of David. These non-Jewish people recognize the Jewish Messiah. Why is that unique? Because they are, they are displaying a faith in Jesus, who's the Jewish Messiah, but is also saving Gentiles. And, and Matthew highlights both. That's what 8 and 9 are. In fact, in chapter 8, I think that's where he talks about the centurion and uh, and Jesus says, in, in all of Israel, I haven't found such faith as this. And when we get there, I'm excited to get there. It'll be a while, but but that centurion understands kind of a, a depth of who Jesus is more than his own disciples. It's unreal when these people see the Jewish Messiah and take heart. This also means that Matthew highlights the rejection of Jesus more vividly than any other gospel writer. Um, and those are kind of those are kind of fun accounts to read because you like it when he sticks it to the Pharisees, right, and the Sadducees. You like to see them be shut up and stopped right where they are, and and that's we get that a lot in Matthew. So. On one hand, you have non-Jewish people in Matthew recognizing who Jesus is to such a beautiful extent. And on the other hand, you have like the Jew of the Jews in Matthew not understanding who Jesus is. But that kind of further serves to serves Matthew's purpose to reveal to Israel that you have rejected your own Messiah. Therefore, weep, mourn. You need him. If you're able to reject your own Messiah, this says a lot of bad things about you, right? About your heart. You guys are looking for him. And he's using his gospel to show you 99 times, look, this is who he is. This is what he fulfilled. This is what he did. From where he was born to how he was born to whom he was born. <coughs> Another thing that uh, Matthew does is he guards kind of the Jewish sensitivity to saying the name of God. And he uses a phrase 32 times in his book that we don't read anywhere else in all the Bible. He uses the phrase kingdom of heaven 32 times where other evangelists and apostles will use the term kingdom of God. And the only explanation that we have for that is that he's, he's trying to sympathize with still the, the Jewish proclivity to, to reverence and fear the name of God so they don't speak it kind of flippantly. They guard that. They hold it holy. They don't say it a lot. So he says kingdom of heaven all the time. And really, if you, if you want to boil the Gospel of Matthew down to one theme, let's just couch it under the kingdom of heaven. This is what the kingdom of heaven is. <clears throat> this who rules over it. This is how it's inaugurated. This is how you live in it. Right? So in Matthew, we have the Sermon on the Mount. There, there, is, there is no 
more intense lesson on discipleship in all the Bible than when Jesus begins to pick apart the law and take it to a degree that no one is comfortable taking it. Right? I mean, are we, are we like to, do we like to be told that we're guilty of murder by hating our brother? Or that we're guilty of adultery by lusting after someone? We don't like that stuff. But Jesus says that's, that's the kind of law that the Lord is asking you to keep. Can you keep that? No. But according to the kingdom of heaven, this is what his citizens look like. And so if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, then what he comes to fulfill is, is what he tells us later on. He's, he's fulfilling all the law, all the prophets. He, he's, he's not relaxing any of it. He's doing it from his very heart. And then not only that, but he's fulfilling the promise in the Old Testament to give us a heart of flesh and a new spirit within us where the law is written on that heart so that we can become these citizens of this kingdom of heaven by his authority and his power. Otherwise, we don't make it. Another interesting thing about Matthew, this is not what Luke does. Luke is, right, more of a historian. He's a doctor. He's methodical. He kind of goes chronologically in a way. Uh, but Matthew doesn't do that. Matthew has a purpose for writing what he's writing. And the main goal is revelation of Jesus as, uh, uh, Jesus as Messiah and then discipleship under his lordship. And so he, he arranges things in order to teach us something. It's not about being in order. It's not about taking this chronological walk through Jesus' life and ministry here on earth. It's about presenting us with the material in a way that we will understand something greater. Matthew is calling people to follow the one who was promised, who has come. He's worthy. No other gospel writer records this much of Jesus' teaching. Luke's not far behind. But all the way to the end, all the way into um, his arrest, Matthew is giving us these lessons that Jesus is teaching his disciples. After the initial introduction to Jesus, his incarnation and his baptism, he's taken into the wilderness to show us how he will overcome what Adam and us cannot. He's going to be the rightful, um, the rightful recipient of the kingdom of heaven. He's, he's showing us that it's his. And he's showing us that we don't follow the law. Indeed, we cannot. But that he does. That that's his destiny, that's his work, that's his call, that's his goal. And, and everything that he reveals about the Father is to lead us to embrace him as Father through Jesus. 
even though these lessons, these discipleship lessons in Matthew are hard, Matthew gives us a humble hope because Matthew didn't hold up to any of these. Matthew didn't obey any of these. Matthew was was living and breaking these and, and living with other people and breaking them. And So why is Matthew so keen on recording all this discipleship material? Because he wants to show us that through Jesus we can live this way. We can. And that's coming from maybe... Maybe of all the apostles, maybe of all the twelve, someone who had the most despised background. So in order to enjoy and get the most out of Matthew, you need to be comfortable going back to your Old Testament. You need to be comfortable with the whole Bible being about Jesus. Because there's going to be some really hard references back to the Old Testament that are going to be really confusing. One of those happens pretty immediately in chapter 2 when Herod has all those (coughs) males under 2 killed because he's trying to snuff out the coming of the Messiah like that's possible. And And they make this reference back that is hard. And confusing. And one thing that Matthew understands about who he's writing to is that when he references the Old Testament, he doesn't give the whole passage that we're meant to understand from that reference. He gives them enough to where they know where to go back to, they know where to go back to in their memory or, or in the scrolls and find the whole passage. He's meaning for you to go back there and to look at the whole thing. So if you see a reference in Matthew that goes back to the Old Testament, go back there and read it all. That's what he wants us to do. It's kind of like he's leaving little clues and little hints and little treasures, and then you've got to go uncover the rest of it. I love that about Matthew. It's amazing. So we will begin with the genealogy of Jesus next time as we are in a season of Advent. And we'll look at, right from the get-go, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right there. He's telling everybody, this is the fulfillment of promise. Jesus, the anointed one. Here's where he came from. Right? And and here are the things surrounding his birth that were prophesied. And then, here's how Jesus overcomes. And I find it interesting here, just as we begin to close, that we have all this miracle surrounding Jesus when Matthew starts his gospel. The fact that he could preserve through all, all these generations and and all these sinners and all these things that could have gone this way and that way, 
and still bring about the, the promised Messiah through the correct lines, and then to have him born in such a way, and then to <clears throat> protect him and save him in such a way. Uh, uh, the first thing that we see Jesus actually do after his baptism is not miraculous. We, we see him engage the, the forces, the powers that be of this world in, in the same way that you and I can, with the Word of God. And he quotes Deuteronomy to do it. Essentially telling the Jewish audience, like, look, <laughs> you have the word of God that you're to live by. And Jesus is here to actually do it for you. Then you move into the Sermon on the Mount, a discipleship lesson that you and I still have trouble with. To this day, I'm sure, some of these hard sayings of Jesus. And then Matthew comforts us in 8 and 9 by revealing that Jesus is not only the Jewish Messiah, the promised one, but that he's been promised for all sinners. Matthew, maybe along with Paul, can say he's chief of sinners in that group of brothers. But one thing that Matthew is more apt to say is that Jesus is the Messiah. And that means a lot more than me being a sinner. So I'm so excited to get into this with you. I pray for you as we get started. And I understand that, um, or I'm, I'm expecting that we will not be the same after we get through this book. My goal is to look into the life and the words of Jesus in the Gospels every five years, and we've hit year five of my time with you. And as the Lord would have it and be willing, we get to look at Matthew and enjoy it together. And so I pray that you would begin a constant and consistent engagement with Matthew that you would read and read and read through and read through. I pray that you would take notes. I pray that you would write down questions. I pray that you would be conformed to the image of Jesus through his word in Matthew. And uh, that's, that's my hope for our time together in this. And so I just ask that you would take these moments to meditate and reflect and ask the Lord as we begin our time in Matthew, to, uh, to bless you in it. And then we'll stand and sing together.